0: I'm Keith Klein, the host of the VentureFizz podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. For the 36th episode of our podcast, I interviewed Eric Paley, managing partner at Founder Collective, a seed stage investment firm in the Boston area. This year, Eric was ranked 11th for the Forbes Midas Touch List, which is a ranking of the top VCs in the industry, and yes, there's no doubt he definitely has the golden touch. Here are quote-unquote some of his investments. He was an early investor in Uber. The Trade Desk, a company that went public two years ago and is currently valued at $3.5 billion. Cruise Automation, a developer of autonomous vehicle technology, was acquired by GM for over a billion. Formlabs, a desktop 3D printing company, recently achieved unicorn valuation status per its recent round of funding. And that is just a small sampling of his investments, never mind if you look across the full portfolio at Founder Collective. Prior to launching Founder Collective with his partners, David Frankel and Micah Rosenblum, he was a co-founder along with Micah at a company called Brontes Technologies that was acquired by 3M. In this episode, we cover lots of topics like Eric's background and his journey into entrepreneurship, the background story about Brontes and how they disrupted an untapped industry, the formation of Founder Collective, the story behind his investment in Uber, why he loves making investments that are non-obvious or non-glamorous, plus a lot more. Okay, quick side note. I hope you've been enjoying the podcast. If you have, please share these stories with all of your coworkers, friends, and colleagues in the industry. Other people need to hear these amazing stories. And let's face it, building a company is really difficult, and we set out to interview the best people who have climbed the mountain successfully so you can learn and get inspired. All right. Without further ado, here's my interview with Eric. Eric, thanks for joining us. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Always good to chat. All right. So you come from this amazing family tree that I've heard that your grandfather is, is he the second oldest man in this country and the fifth oldest man in the entire world?
1: Uh, At least recorded, yes. Um, Although I'm going to undermine all that right away by saying my cousins are going to outlive me by decades because (laughs) he married my grandmother uh, before I was born, but he's not biologically my grandfather. But Aha. I very much grew up with him as my grandfather. So Got it. I'm going to have some very, very uh, long-living cousins.
0: That's amazing. Hopefully
1: they'll miss me when I'm gone.
0: And, and how's he doing?
1: He's doing all right. He's uh, His mind is very sharp. It's actually quite amazing. And what is his age? He's 111 and a half. Wow.
0: That's amazing. Yeah, Amazing. Crazy. Now, about you as far as your background. So um, where did you grow up?
1: I grew up on Long Island in New York. Okay.
0: So that makes you a Mets fan?
1: I am a very big and somewhat depressed Mets fan.
0: <laughs> it's been a rough season, no doubt.
1: It's been a rough decade. We, we did have a good world, one, one good World Series run, but it's been pretty, pretty tough.
0: Mm-hmm. So, how'd you end up at Dartmouth?
1: Um, that's actually a great question. I, you know, thinking back now, it's hard to actually really answer it. You know, I visited a whole bunch of schools and just sort of fell in love uh, with the school and um, felt this you know, it drew me in and uh, I think it's a very special place and ultimately met my wife there. Um, We've been together very, you know, quite a long time, more than half our lives now. Um, And we were up for reunion this year and still feel that way. And I I think our kids came with us and uh, I think they too really uh, were drawn in by just a sense of place.
0: Yeah. Hanover is awesome. Just a great place.
1: Beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. Yeah.
0: Yeah, The whole, like, that's something that I'm Probably should do for uh, venture fizz, like the uh, Dartmouth alumni network and where all these great entrepreneurs have you know gone through the walls of Dartmouth.
1: It's quite yeah, a we definitely we definitely have. There's a an old joke about Dartmouth and Harvard where they say Harvard makes the best uh, CEOs and entrepreneurs, and Dartmouth makes the best vice presidents. Um, but but I think <laughs> I think that's changed a lot over the years. That um, Dartmouth entrepreneur network is definitely. Improved quite a lot, and there are a lot of great entrepreneurs coming out of the school.
0: Now you ha- have a degree in government. So what, what was the thinking behind that?
1: What's up with that? Yeah, <laughs> um, I, you know, I, I didn't expect to be an entrepreneur. I really thought I was going to be a lawyer. Uh, three of my four grandparents were lawyers, which certainly was unusual in my grandmother's uh, time to be a, a, a woman um, and actually end up studying law. There weren't a lot of places you could do that. And I think sort of proud history of lawyers in our family. I always thought I was going to be a lawyer. Uh, I, I love studying government. Um, it, uh, I think it, it's a good discipline for analytical skills and quality of writing and speaking. Um, and so I enjoyed that a lot, but ultimately never made it to law school, which which worked out okay for me.
0: Mm-hmm. But then you went into strategy consulting right after?
1: I made the mistake of, uh, of going down to monitor group. Um, which was uh, at the time a strategy consulting firm that has now been merged into Deloitte. Mm -hmm. Um, It was not for me. Um, I I think a lot of young people uh, get tempted into that. These groups do an incredible job of making their jobs seem extremely prestigious and exciting uh, on campus. It's an incredible example of really good recruiting and branding. Mm -hmm. Um, but I honestly think very few people end up really, uh, enjoying those jobs or wanting to make a career out of them. And I was very fortunate to uh, dislike it enough that I started looking around for much more interesting things to do and ended up getting involved in entrepreneurship.
0: Right. And then, so that's when you started your first company, right?
1: I did. I uh, was uh, living in New York. It was the age of Silicon Alley, uh, back in 1999. Um, and I really wanted to be a part of that startup scene. Uh, New York was thriving back then as it is today. And um, so we started a web development and uh, marketing company called Abstract Edge with my brother and my cousin. Uh, and that company still exists today, uh, which is, I think, pretty remarkable given that it's 18 years later. Because that you were competing.
0: Excuse me competing against like Razorfish and Scient, Viant, like those types of companies back then, right?
1: Yeah. I, th- I think it would be an overstatement to say we were competing much against those guys because they were huge and we were tiny. We were a little boutique mm-hmm. firm. Same type of service. Uh, so I think we modeled ourselves on them, but I think at our peak, we probably had fewer than 20 people. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, but yes, we were doing that kind of work. Um, at a much lower cost. And, uh, we peeled, I think to a different kind of clientele, but I would say it was very interesting when the dot com economy crashed, we did find ourselves, um, competing for very small projects with those players who the year before wouldn't do a project that wasn't 20 times the size. And I, that was a very challenging time to be in that business.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. Those companies were folding up left and right. So what led you to B school uh, to go to HBS?
1: Well, I, th- I think you know when economies are really good, um, <laughs> young young people uh, are progressing and doing really well, and there's sort of a sense of, um, I've got this under control. I know what I'm doing." And I think the second economies get really bad, uh, and there isn't a lot of success coming your way. There's a natural tendency to go, "Wait a second, Maybe I actually don't know what I'm doing, right? And I was twenty five years old, and my company was really struggling. Um, and, you know, I really felt like I was out in the world talking about digital marketing as an expert and probably had some expertise, but really didn't know the fundamentals of marketing or building a business or even entrepreneurship. Um, and felt like going to business school would be a very good place to deepen that, uh, and, you know, get more confidence in that world. And, um, I think even though in these very good times, probably a lot of people scoff at that. I actually think it really turned out to be true for me and probably is true for lots of other uh, entrepreneurs who who spend two years um, deepening their craft uh, through a a, a, you can deepen your craft entrepreneurially, but you can also deepen it, I think, in a place like Harvard Business School. And I personally got a lot out of it, including um, lifelong relationships with people who uh, became instrumental in my career.
0: And I was going to make that point. So obviously you learn a lot at HBS that goes without saying, but it's also about the networking connections you make while you were there. And you went at a very special like class that, you know, these people that you went to B school with are people that are well known amongst the the tech industry, including, you know, your partners at Founder Collective, right?
1: Yeah. You know, you start to get old enough and, and, uh, and, and people start to get a more known, I guess. But um, we, we, we did have a very interesting class partially because it was at the end of the dot com boom. Nine um, eleven happened our first week in school, uh, and you know the joke back then when we were graduating was B two B meant back to back to banking, and B two C meant back to consulting, because there really was very little opportunity in entrepreneurship. And in two thousand three, nobody wanted to back. Um, a HBS entrepreneur. No VC was interested. That Nobody showed up in the business plan competition uh, to judge, no VCs at least, and nobody was chasing after these companies. In fact, when we started Brontes, there was an article when we were struggling to raise money. Mass High Tech wrote an article about how no MIT 50K, now it's called the 100K, team had been funded by venture capitalists in three years. Wow. So it, things were pretty bleak. It's hard to remember that because I think whenever things are different, it's hard to remember how they once were in a way, um, but it was it was bleak times. And I think what was cool about that in a, in a more positive silver lining kind of way is that people who are very serious about entrepreneurship um, emerge in those times because you couldn't do this stuff if you weren't really committed to it because it was really very difficult and um, improbable. It's always improbable, but it was even more improbable of success. And I think Bronte's was the only venture-backed company our year at a business school where the MBA students who graduated actually led the company Mm -hmm. as CEO and COO. So um, very different from today.
0: And you just started talking about your next company. So I love to hear background stories. So you set off to disrupt the dental industry, which I know, right? That's not exactly well, what you set out to I do. To fair,
1: we set <laughs> off to disrupt the dental industry. It's not how we started exactly. Right. We, yeah. we were, um, Mike Rosenblum, who's now my partner and founder Collective, and I were classmates and we're looking at doing a totally different project together. And we met a professor and a postdoc at MIT um, who had some interesting 3D scanning technology. And they encouraged us to come to their lab and see what they had. Um, and we were just getting started on this other project. And uh, with lots of bumps and bruises along the way, um, we all started working together to figure out how to commercialize their technology. Um, and, you know, it, it's very interesting. Like academically, the technology is very interesting. Um, we were too naive to realize that none of it actually worked in any real practical way that was unique or interesting at the time. Um, it didn't mean the science wasn't very legit, um, but they were doing demonstrations that were really off of generally accepted 3d imaging principles at the time. Um, and, but with a twist of, and then if we can enable some of these other academic concepts, it'd be very powerful. Um, so we went on this journey of looking at about 40 applications for the technology, um, dentistry didn't crack the top three. Uh, we first thought we were going to go into industrial inspection mm-hmm. and, uh, A bunch of reasons why we were really struggling with that got close to raising venture money in that space. And then, um, uh, as uh, we started, we were really struggling there. We took a deeper look at dentistry, and the premise was actually very interesting. It's not a market I ever thought I would want to be in, but I I always think you know, when you really get close to the ground of problems in a market and you think you can change the way a market works, it gets very interesting. Mm -hmm. Um, And in this case, Dentistry was the largest remaining cottage industry in the world. At least that's something we've been saying now for many, many years. Nobody's been able to correct us on that. However, it's been 17 years. Um, nobody's given us a better example. Is it it's about three to four hundred billion dollars of production done by artisans by hand, right? Mostly, somewhat the dentists, but primarily the dental laboratories. And mass customization was kind of cracking into the industry in ways like Invisalign and a company called Seric and um, 3M at a product on the on the milling side called Lava, but literally tiny little market shares at the time. And our belief was if you could scan the mouth, you could flip the whole paradigm on its head and start with a digital input that drove towards mass customized outputs. And so we set out to do that, to basically disrupt the dental industry by creating that digital input to replace the dental impression, which was an analog input. Um, so that was a long time ago now. That was uh 2003, we, late 2003, we really figured out what we wanted to be.
0: And and how did you determine or or get traction in a market like that? It's not like you had an MVP that you could just flip around. Like this was like hard tech.
1: Yeah. I would just give you an idea, right? We figured out who we wanted to be in late 2003. We launched the product in late 2006. So it was not, you know, a quick, you know, get it into the market, but you can do a lot of validation with your customers long before at least validating the problem set. Maybe hard to validate whether your solution works as well as you think it will. Mm-hmm. Um, but in terms of really understanding the problem, we spent a lot of time learning the industry uh, and working with dentists uh, and laboratories to understand the problem, because it was not a market I was um, knowledgeable about, even really interested in when we got started. Um, but at some point, people started asking us where we went to dental school. And we would take that as the sort of highest possible compliment right. that um, we were doing a pretty good job learning the industry. And then
0: it was really hard to raise capital. It still is hard, but it was less capital to, you know, to go pitch VCs, right? Especially different stages of companies. So it was
1: it was the nadir of the fallout of the dot com market. It was the lowest um, year of new funding for startups um in in uh in over a decade, and and since, by the way, as well. Um, so it was a very tough time to raise. And it was very interesting. And I think a lot of companies that struggle with a technology searching for a problem have this interesting thing where VCs get very excited about all the the platform notion of all the different markets you can go after. Um, And, but then at some point they hit a wall when they're like, yeah, but who's really your customer? And they'll spend lots of meetings getting excited and brainstorming with you, but they they eventually hit that wall, even though um, they don't think they will, like it's sort of where they get caught. Um, Once you pick your market, you go the opposite way. All of a sudden, right from the start, they're doing all this market diligence. And they're like, geez, I don't know. That feels very narrow. I'm not sure that's very big. So it was tough times to raise. And we pitched a we were out pitching a market that none of them knew or were excited about. And people would always say dentists are really cheap and they have the highest suicide rate of any medical profession and the highest depression. And it was all 20-year-old stigmas about the dental industry. And my joke that I used to say at the time is. Um, You can judge an industry by how high the ceilings are at the trade shows. So we went to things in industrial inspection and it was um, the ceilings were very low, right? It was like hotel rooms where they'd have these meetings uh, <laughs> with you know, very low ceilings because the industry didn't really have money. There was right. no the Ramada major com- company. <laughs> you know, there was all these companies that did a million in sales and had partnerships with Boeing um, as sort of subsistence startups, and then uh, you go to dental, and there, you know, it's at the Javits Center, the McCormick Place, the you know Boston Convention Center. Massive. It's like forty foot high ceilings. You are like, wait a second.
0: <laughs> there is money here money in this industry. <laughs> so then you are able to actually convince VCs to make an investment.
1: We were very lucky, but let me start by saying Dave Frankel bet on us, and Dave's my partner now at Founder Collective. But our story of working together, we met in business school, and at graduation, Dave said to me. Um, I'll back you no matter what you're doing. Basically, I, I believe in you and I think you'll do something special. Um, and I remember going back to Dave, we, we didn't take his money right away. Cause I was really terrified of losing his money. Mm-hmm. And, um, Dave had been a very successful entrepreneur before business school and I ended up backing a bunch of people from our class and doing extremely well with that. But it took me, um, about seven months to take his money. And by the time I was taking his money, I went back and said, Hey, here's what we're doing. We're doing dental and, you know, telling him about all about the industry. <laughs> And I think he had like a pause, like he was like, huh, well, I told you I'd back whatever you're doing, so um, I'll back you. <laughs> Very excited about Tennel at first. Um, and then pretty quickly behind, we were able to get money, but we truly would not have gotten into business if not for Dave. But um, Bain Capital Ventures, Charles River Ventures, now CRV, and what's now called Flybridge uh, were the three VCs who uh, led our Series A.
0: If I've heard the story correct, you were raising another round. Like I think your product was about to go to market, raising another round, and then, then things got really interesting for you guys.
1: Yeah, we were um, starting our beta tests, uh, so we weren't even really about to go to market. It was sort of unknown how far we were from beta. Okay. And I declared to my board we were going to go raise Series B, and they said, you, you still have $4 million in the bank. Um, doesn't feel like the right time. And I said, look, I can demonstrate through a beta that this thing is going to work and most people are going to believe me, but I have no idea how long the clinical program is going to be to get to market. I just have no idea. Mm -hmm. And so um, I think we've done a step function in value in that people can come and evaluate our beta and see it in offices and appreciate that it works, um, even if we don't have the clinical validation yet that it does. This wasn't a drug, right? So there wasn't this big if. It was -hmm. was a little bit more of, I mean, I guess something could have really tripped us up, but it's really more a matter of when. We could demonstrate clinically that it worked, but, um, that would take time and we'd have no idea how much time. So, um, you know, one of our funds, uh, already at the table was interested in doing an inside round. Unfortunately, we couldn't come to agreement on terms. I went outside. We went to three strategics largely because I always felt like I was trying to prove to my board that they were right to invest. You know, they were in this industry they didn't really want to be in. There was always a lot of skepticism. How do you really know? Uh, and I really felt if I'd get a strategic to the table, we could get a lot of those questions off the table. Um, I thought even more if we got an offer to sell the company, just to have an offer, we'd take some of those questions off the table because the financing terms had always been kind of tough. And um, we had good VCs, but they definitely were skeptics. Uh, and so we lined up three um, strategics who were interested. We had uh, external venture money that was interested. We ended up agreeing to work with one, one of the strategics, they were going to lead our round. Uh, and we told one of the other strategics that we were not taking their money and they flew up right away to, to Lexington, Mass and said, how can we convince you otherwise? This was the COO and the CTO of the company. And we said, you know, quite boldly and a little dismissively, uh, absent uh offer to buy the company for an outrageous amount of money that's way more than anyone's ever paid for a pre-revenue company in our industry, i pretty much think there's nothing you can do. Um, and within a week they made that offer.
0: So that was a bold statement to make that you're like calling their bluff and they're like, okay. It
1: it was sort of a low risk statement. We were definitely not taking their money and Mm -hmm. it was a little bit to see. I I kept saying to Micah, I feel like if if somebody fired a shot across the bow, there'd be a bidding war. Yeah. Um, And so it was a little bit uh, seeing if they were interested and they did make a pretty significant offer. And then we called up for other parties who had been developing relationships with over time And said, hey, you know, you remember you once said somebody may show up here and want to buy us. And if they ever did before we said, yes, we should call you. This is your phone call. Um, You know, if you're interested, we need to know very quickly. And so we had five bidders, including the company that wanted to lead the Series B. And we were actually able to do something a little unique in that we took their capital, all of the Series B capital into escrow. So it didn't hit our cap table, but we were able to call it down uh, on demand if we wanted it. So it kept, it allowed us to um, sell. It, the Series B would have messed up our ability to sell, and it also would have created a lot of dilution. It, because we knew what the Series B was, one, we both had comfort that we could run a process and know we had capital if we needed it, if the process didn't work out. But it also meant that we knew what our dilution would be because it was quite significant. It was a $25 million round, terms were not as generous as today, the option pool increase was significant. So, we knew to break even on the deal um, at where it was ultimately going to be, what price would be the break even price. And it was substantial. And that taught us a lot about where the sales price would be interesting to us.
0: And which ultimately mm-hmm. got you to the point yeah, of an
1: acquisition. The company was ultimately sold for just short of $100 million to 3M. We raised about $8 million. So, um, you know, I've written this blog post there's no shame in the $100 million exit. I don't say that because I have any shame, but because almost every VC who is ever an entrepreneur today sold their company for something around a hundred million dollars. There are very few Mark Andreessen and Ben Harwitz being great exceptions and Reid Hoffman, very, very few exits are in the billions of dollars, despite that that's what VCs today want from their entrepreneurs. Um, but this was a exit we thought made a lot of sense. Um, David got 10 X's money back. Um, other v- the VCs all did very well. It was a, um, it was It was a you know win in every direction. and 3M was a great buyer for the company in uh, nearly every way.
0: Yeah, it was a huge win. I mean, it, like you said, like in today's land of the unicorns, like but then that was a huge win.
1: Yeah, I'm pretty convinced that if we were living in the age of the unicorns and the VCs had really discouraged us from selling, we ultimately would not have had a win at all. Mm-hmm. Um, for a couple of reasons. One thing that we didn't know, which was a financial crisis, was not very far away. Uh, capital equipment in the dental industry went into a tailspin for that period of time. It came back, but it was a very difficult time and our burn rate had gone up quite a bit. We were making equipment was very, uh, expensive, uh, we weren't getting meaningful gross margin on it at the beginning. Um, and so the, um, the capital needs were very substantial. And. Th-
0: 3M did end up using the product and created a whole product line. Is it true oh, definition? Yeah. They
1: that's- bought us twelve years ago, and the product's still in the market today.
0: Yeah, that's awesome.
1: It's called the 3M True Definition Scanner, and if your mm-hmm. dentist doesn't have it or something like it, tell him tell him he or she is a dinosaur and uh, needs to get <laughs> needs to get a scanner. So you have your big
0: win under your belt. What did you think you wanted to do next?
1: You know, I, I um, it's funny the whole time I was running Brontes. Uh, the VCs would talk to me about when the right time was to bring in a real CEO. And very quickly after we sold Brontes, those same VCs were recruiting me to be that real CEO for some other <laughs> companies. And I entertained a couple of them that I thought were really interesting. Um, two in particular ended up becoming pretty real companies. Obviously, I had nothing to do with them. Um, but uh, one of them I remember driving driving away from, and I loved the founder of the company. Um, I just thought he was phenomenal. It was very early, just the, that founder at the time. And I just thought to myself if this um if I was ready to start another company, this would be it. But I just wasn't ready to go you know five to seven years deep in that industry, just as I had just completed in dental. and I wanted to be a three m for a while. So I stuck around three m for a while, and then at some point, I started talking to those same v c s about maybe joining them as as a venture capitalist, and ultimately had two offers to do so. And uh, Dave Frankel was still living in South Africa, and we had done a lot of angel investing together, particularly after I'd sold Brontes, um, and uh, along with Micah, and a friend of ours in New York at the time, Chris Dixon. And um, Dave said, you know, I've been thinking of moving to the U.S. Uh, and starting a fund, but I wouldn't do it unless I had a partner I really wanted to work with. And so it's pretty much up to you whether I move to the U.S., um and uh so we spent more time digging into that he came over for business school reunion later that year in 2008 uh we went on a trip together to talk to some potential LPs who immediately committed even though we hadn't made up our mind we were doing it yet um and so we decided to do it and then the financial crisis hit i was transitioning out of 3m all of those almost all of those commitments went away um and there we were david arrived in february 2009 um, and um, the world was coming to an end financially, and the idea of raising new funds seemed almost ridiculous. And I remember going for breakfast the morning after he arrived, and he said, "What do you think our chances are?" <laughs> and I said, "I don't know; they seem pretty much non-existent." But you're here, and I don't have a job, so we may as well try. Um, and uh, we thought we had a very different view. The idea was really to commercialize a lot of what David had been doing, that I thought was more aligned to my interest as an early stage entrepreneur than any of the VCs were. How do you turn that into something institutional? Uh, and that was the genesis of Founder Collective. A lot of the work Dave had been doing as an angel, and I had been lucky enough to be a part of both as an entrepreneur as, and as a co-investor. And uh, you know, we started going out telling that story, and a lot of people took meetings because they didn't have much else to do, but they really didn't have the capital or the wherewithal to commit in that time. And it was, it was actually an extremely difficult fundraise and ultimately, the quarter we raised the fund, we we're very lucky to get it done. The only other new fund that quarter was Andreessen Horowitz. Those were the only two new funds that quarter. And the funny thing was, we really thought there was a very big open opportunity for a much more aligned right. Our mission statement is to be the most aligned fund to founders at the seed stage. We thought there was a very big opportunity and very limited seed capital. And a journalist who later became a friend of ours wrote a piece. Right then, you can find it if you're interested. Um, announcing our fund. We didn't ask her to. She she actually found it from the filings. We weren't ready to talk about it yet. And she said, just what the world needs right now, another venture fund. So um, <laughs> we really felt like, yeah, this is actually really what the world needs right now. Like we really thought, you know, this was uh, important to the entrepreneurial ecosystem. Um, but, you know, there's been, I have no idea, like 600 seed venture capital funds since us. <laughs> so clearly other people thought the world needed more of them. Um, and I made a prediction in, uh, in late '09 at a panel where I was on a panel with four seasoned VCs whose funds were in big trouble and uh, really hurting at the time because it was a financial crisis. My prediction was that there wasn't a lot of need for $500 million VCs, that it made more sense that their funds would get split up into $50 million chunks. Um, and I think that's not exactly what's happened, but I actually think we've seen a lot of that.
0: Well, and you created this, I mean, you were one of the first firms, I don't know if it was the first or one of the first firms doing this micro stage VC investing that if you were an entrepreneur in Boston back in that era, you couldn't find someone that was going to write that size of check for you. I mean, it was, there was very little,
1: I mean, we had a few um, really, really good people ahead of us. And I think this is always true in really tough times. The, the, there are no pretenders because the pretenders don't, they try to do something easier, right? Uh, I think it was true of founding a company in 2003. I think it was true of founding a venture fund in this era. So the people who really were committed are the ones who step up in those moments. And um, we had a few predecessors, but to give you an idea of how, maybe naive, but I was an entrepreneur in the US, so I I think I was somewhat in the market. Um, We really knew little about these folks. Like, it was not like, wow, look at the amazing work these folks are doing. Although as we dug in more, we were impressed. But it was almost like, only through research did we know much about the players who were out there at the time because it was so early and, and most entrepreneurs really were not up to speed that this kind of notion of seed investing was, um, was emerging, right? And so there were great play, groups like um, First Round and Mike Maples at the time didn't call his fund Floodgate uh, and SoftTech, which is now Uncork, existed and, um, and OATV, which Bryce Roberts was leading. There really was, you know, a handful, there might've been four or five, six established seed venture funds, but it was so early that when I saw the, the, uh, where in the world is Matt holiday video from first round, which I think is the first one they ever did. Mm-hmm. I was like, mm-hmm. Oh, you know, mm-hmm. these guys, these guys are like kindred spirits. Like they really get it. Yeah. Um, and, but we didn't really know them. I think I'd maybe just met Josh for the first time at that point. Mm-hmm. So, um, these were early days and and obviously tons of seed funds have come about since, which I see as as um maybe it's hard to be the six hundredth, but I, I certainly see as validation that the market needed this
0: and so you raise your first fund, you're out there hustling meeting entrepreneurs, and this you know you guys are on your third fund now, right? That's right. So, but each fund ar- along the way has been, uh, amazing as far as the entrepreneurs you've invested in. And I always wonder like, so how do you become the first uh, angel investor in a company like Uber?
1: Um, So, <laughs> so I, I think every one of our companies comes through some relationship connection um, uh, that we've built. And so hopefully we're doing a good job of telling our story out there, but even more so, hopefully the people who have benefited the entrepreneur's are out there telling our story. Uh, and that leads to people coming in the door. And we had a very close relationship with one of our part-time partners uh, who, when he was an entrepreneur, Bill Trenchard, who we had known for quite some time. Micah Rosenblum uh, had Bill on his board of his first company back in 1999. Um, and, uh, and Bill was a really great entrepreneur um, that we all admired. And so he started working with us part-time. Um, he uh, was connected to the company. Uh, He was pretty active at that point at looking at things with us and said, hey, you know, Eric, this one looks really interesting. Uh, But Bill was sending it a ton at that time. Um, You know, but I like this. Why don't you take a meeting? Uh, And the meeting was with Ryan Graves. Uh, Travis Kalanick hadn't joined the company full time yet. They'd recruited Ryan. He was running the company. uh, And I really liked Ryan. And it's interesting in retrospect, a lot of people said, oh, I didn't invest because Travis wasn't running the company. And I always think that's interesting. Like one of the reasons I invested was Ryan was running the company. I thought he was terrific. And Bill and I debriefed on it. We're really excited about it. um, And ended up joining first round and Chris Saka um, and Mitch Kapoor, who were the other uh, investors. There were a few other angels um, in that round. So we were very lucky to be a part of it.
0: And what was the pitch that Ryan gave you? Like, Like what was the pure idea at that stage versus what they are today?
1: Yeah, so we bet much more on people than we do on ideas. And I think Uber's a great example. I always tell this story, but in, in the same year, we we invested in a company called RideJoy, which I would argue is a lot closer to what Uber's model is today than what Uber was back when we invested. And we didn't even see them as a conflict. They were both in transportation, but one was doing ride sharing and the other was doing, you know, on-demand livery, you know, black cars. Um, and so one was peer-to-peer and the other was professional and It didn't seriously. Didn't even seem like a conflict at the time. Ridejoy is long out of business. You know, Uber's worth seventy billion dollars. It's all about people, and it's all about execution. And um, the you know, Uber just executed brilliantly. And a lot of credit to Travis, certainly to Ryan, uh, and a lot of other people who made massive contributions to what was just exceptional execution.
0: So one of the things that I've um, read about you, or have seen maybe in one of your blog posts, you have an interest in making investments that are non obvious or non glamorous industries. Can you elaborate on that a little bit more?
1: Yeah, you know, I, I commented on this earlier that it's hard to remember how things felt in the past when they feel a certain way. Now, Uber feels like the hottest company of our time because obviously it's been valued tremendously, it's grown, it's a household name. But when we made that investment, I had friends in Boston, the venture industry, who were like, I I just don't get it. You know, that how hard is it for one of the 20,000 gram transportation companies out there to make a mobile app? It just doesn't seem hard. And besides the fact that it actually is harder than it seems, um, again, it just comes down to exceptional talent and execution and insights into the industry that are not necessarily obvious. So now that looks like a really obvious investment. At the time, it was really, really unsexy. And we, we have found over time a lot of the really most exciting things we've done really were not in the moment really uh, apparently exciting. And, you know, we're in an industry that's very interested in being thematic. And our observation of thematic investing is you get the Groupon craze, right? That it, 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 there was no theme prior to Groupon that discount group buying is going to be the hottest thing of our time. It's only when a company starts to emerge and look really good in that space that a lot of other companies want to get into it. And to me, that's fine if you're a later stage investor. But for a seated stage investor, it basically just means you're chasing. You're late to the market and you're chasing. Your imagination is dictated by seeing some other company do well in a space. And so what we think is that the themes of tomorrow that people think are going to be hot, like ground transportation, don't seem very interesting or or, fan, or like hot in the moment. And so we're looking for things that make sense to us as use cases that we think matter in a market like Brontes did, or we did a company called Opower that was in um, energy conservation. It was not a hot area, but it actually made a lot of sense. Or a company called Embark here in Boston that does dog DNA testing. But we think there are a bunch of reasons that's going to ultimately – we're not trying to pick the hot space, but that's ultimately going to be a very valuable use case. And I think they've done extremely well since we invested. Or PillPack, which – I think now people are trying to replicate. It sounds hot. Mm-hmm. You know, at the time, they were in Tech Stars. And yeah. frankly, I think any fund during Techstars could have joined us. They ended up getting funded after we did it before Techstars. We invested. Any fund could have joined us during Techstars. ultimately accomplice did. But they were open for taking money. It's just nobody wanted to fund a pharmacy. Right. And now, in retrospect, I think you see a lot of companies playing in similar spaces. And so you know when we did Cruise Automation, they were at a yc anyone could have invested but you know the idea that a startup was going to build a self-driving car company didn't make a lot of sense to most people and ever since that cruise sale or maybe even investment there have been dozens that have been funded by venture capitalists so you know we're trying to not get caught up in the hype of the moment whether it's crypto or ai or big data or you know i've been a vc now for 9 years and every year there's some thing that vcs like to talk about largely cuz I think we like to feel smart. And journalists like to ask us the question. They're like, what's hot right now? And I'm always like, well, let me tell you about something nobody would consider hot, but I think is interesting. Um, And so we found, sometimes we're wrong, we're frequently wrong, but we found over time that a lot of um, the very best companies that end up creating a hot theme um, really weren't hot at the time. Another phenomenal example is MakerBot. Who, you know, they went into a 20-year-old 3D printing industry that was completely unexciting to most venture capitalists. And, you know, then the hype, you know, they drove up the hype curve dramatically. People got infatuated with what they were doing. And then, of course, there was a huge crash in enthusiasm. And we were lucky to be investors in Formlabs and Desktop Metal that I think are both going to be amazing companies, but actually were out there raising again after that sort of crash of enthusiasm. So again, those weren't, um, companies that everyone in the moment when we were getting, when they were getting started thought made a ton of sense.
0: Any misses that you've had companies that you, you know, were talking to the the founders, legit opportunity that you passed on that you're like, Oh, seriously, why did we pass on that?
1: Yeah. I mean, I I think we get, try to be too smart sometimes and spend too much time Thinking about whether or not we really believe in the market instead of thinking about how much we believe in the person. We have lots of companies over time where we've seen them early uh, and got confused largely because we weren't so sure about the market or we thought we were too smart because we understood the market already. So, one that comes to mind that I think is a really interesting company is Thumbtack. Love the entrepreneur, uh, had just spent time looking at another company in the space a whole bunch of time, ultimately convinced ourselves we didn't like the space, even though really what we should have convinced ourselves of is that just that company wasn't what we were looking for. Um, but by the time I got to Thumbtack, I was probably a little too close-minded. Um, you know, we made way too much of like a domain level analysis of stitch fix in its early days. Um, and really should have just gotten to know the entrepreneur and realized how special she was. Mm -hmm. Um, so I think, you know, we, we've certainly as, as, Lucky as we've been and as as proud as we are of our portfolio, um, we've missed we've missed a lot of really really good companies along the way.
0: Now, once you know, it sounds well. I'm assuming the best way to get in touch with you, get on your radar, is through an introduction. Uh, but once someone gets to that point where they're you know grabbing some time on your your calendar, like what is that first pitch meeting like or first meeting with an entrepreneur? Like what's what's what do you like to see from the founder?
1: Unfortunately, I think most founders are so in the mode of selling that they don't either show or genuinely aren't truth-seeking. And I don't mean to say they are uh, not telling mistruths, but we like founders who are relentlessly truth-seeking, meaning way ahead of us and way ahead of our questions, they're trying to figure out for themselves what the challenges are and how to overcome them. And unfortunately, in the mode of trying to sell, they sell themselves. Um, and they come in and they really try to be persuasive ahead of trying to embrace and seek truth together um, and you feel that you know you're sitting in a meeting and you feel like somebody is just selling you start asking them hard questions and they either get annoyed or they start being dismissive or they start being defensive and what you're hoping for is they say you know that's a really good question and we don't know the answer but here's how we're thinking about it or here's what I've done to try to validate that that's something we can overcome or um, really get into the mode of uh, my job is to figure out the truth of this market. And I'm here with you f- sharing what we figured out so far um, and how we're thinking about what we haven't figured out so far. Cause of course you haven't figured out everything so far. And those founders speak to us. Now there will definitely be founders who their nature is defensive uh, and they don't, they don't um, present that well in the meeting because of that, who end up creating great companies. But um but we're okay erring on the side of the ones that start that way because we get a lot of founders who say things like, you know, we're going to pivot anyway, Eric. So why are you so obsessed with about the market? Or you keep saying it's all about people. And then you're asking all these questions about the market. And you know, the response is, look, the way I tell about people is by asking these questions Mm because what I'm trying to figure out is how are you prosecuting this challenge? How are you going about it? How are you learning? How are you seeking truth? Um, And, so I'm less interested in, in actually like going out and diligencing the market and more interested in how are they grappling with the market challenges. Um, so th- that's how we think about it.
0: You've seen a lot of different companies in different industries scale, and I'm sure you've seen massive success. You've seen probably companies that have had you know, a rocky road to finally get to success, and then you've seen failure. Are there any common mistakes that you see entrepreneurs that they make when they're trying to scale a company?
1: Um. Yes. Uh. They're trying too hard to be right, instead of trying to har- insanely hard to find the right answer. Um. They're. You know. Scott Belsky has this great comment, and I'm going to mess it up somewhat. But the the directional. I love Scott. I think he's a great entrepreneurial philosopher. But the directional uh comment is something like, um, they uh they're so focused on the solution that they lose empathy for their customer. And that empathy wins out over thinking you know and think, uh, thinking you have the right solution. They're they're so passionate about what they're trying to do, they they lose the focus and passion on the empathy for the customer. And I think that's a fine line distinction, but it's a real issue because the the, the founders who succeed don't succeed because they're right all the time. Mm-hmm. They succeed because they figure out as quickly as possible what they're wrong about and they adapt. Um. And the founders who run out of time are the ones who are dogged in being convinced that they are right, whether or not all the evidence or much of the evidence, and it's always somewhat ambiguous, is telling them the opposite. And I think the best way to be right is to be obsessed with empathy for what your customer cares about and what they need. And I think if you're obsessed with that, and again, stealing from Scott on this um, and you're uh, incredibly fast learning and adaptive, um, you'll often find the right answer. Um, But if you're, uh, too slow to adapt, and too convinced that you're right instead of finding truth, um, you're you're almost definitely going to fail. The other thing I'd say is, for almost every company that finds product market fit, they fail because of their financing strategy. the The main thing that actually kills them, the venture industry is very enabling of this because largely our incentives are different than the v, than the entrepreneurs' incentives. Founder Collective has tried to set itself up to be more aligned in that regard. But it's financing strategy that actually kills, ultimately kills companies who have product market fit.
0: So what, what advice would you give in that regard, the financing strategy?
1: Yeah, go slow to go fast. And I don't mean go slow on learning, but go slow on validation. When you accelerate um, your parts of your business because you have capital and they're unvalidated, they're very, very hard to unwind. And there's a forever cost in some ways to actually unwinding things that didn't work There's a cost and opportunity, cost in time of actually figuring out what will work. There's a cost in sort of reputation because usually, rightfully, it usually has to come with layoffs. It's hard to avoid that. So that hurts you because people are a little more uh, concerned about going to a company that has done layoffs. Um, It it costs you in confidence for you and your investors. Um, It's a very high cost to going too fast um, before you're ready. So you've got to find those validations. And the venture industry, because there's a lot of capital has a very strong incentive in driving capital into companies that look like they're working, sometimes prematurely, and often too much capital. And then the entrepreneur wants to live up to that capital by getting the next raise to be at a way higher price. And that creates pressure to start doing unnatural things that are actually not good logical business um, because of um, steroid-infused behavior. And I think that sort of steroid, even though I really believe in investment, I believe in venture capital, I think um, there's a lot of value in investing in things that work, but often we're investing in things that don't. And instead of being able to fix those things, we double down, double down, double down, uh, or the entrepreneur does, and they never recover.
0: That's amazing advice. Eric, thanks so much for taking the time. I appreciate you sharing all your advice here, words of wisdom, uh, very powerful stuff.
1: Pleasure. Thanks for the good work you're doing, Keith.
0: All right. Thanks again.
1: Well, that's our show.
0: I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFiz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.